Good morning, church family. Uh, our Bible reading this morning will be from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 39, and it reads as follows. For I consider that the sufferings for this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is sin is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life no angels, no rulers, no things present, no things to come, no powers, no height, no death, no anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's been a difficult week, hasn't it? I praise God that um, We've finished this week a little better than we started. At least that's true Friday morning when we are recording this. But it certainly has been a difficult week. It started out with the shocking visuals, uh, those videos that we all saw of police squaring off against crowds, uh, images of, of burning buildings and brazen acts of theft, people pushing a trolley down one side of the street with the police uh, being able to do nothing but stand and watch on the other side of the street. The violence, the destruction. 
First it was the shock. And then after the shock, the fear set in. Just how bad is this going to get? Are we safe? Is my family safe? What should I be doing? Is there anything I can be doing? And with enough negative reinforcement from social media, fake and otherwise, eventually the fear, or very quickly, the fear turns to panic. Your breathing is a little shallower. You're not sleeping so well. You're stressed. You're anxious all the time. I think that reaction describes more of us than we would like to admit. But somewhere in the back of our minds, we remember, hang on, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Is this how I'm supposed to be responding? And if not, how am I supposed to respond? And that's what I want us to reflect on this morning. Because we need comfort today. And also because this is not the last time we're going to be in deep waters. We need to reflect on how we respond as disciples of Jesus at a time such as this. And Romans 8 is a wonderful guide for us. It's a wonderful guide. I would encourage you to take this chapter, read it, reread it, pray through it, meditate on it, drink deep of Romans 8. It's a wonderful guide. I think we can pull out a number of themes to help us. Uh, Let me list just seven. Pain, presence, prayer, peace, providence, passion, and perspective. Pain, presence, prayer, peace, providence, passion, and perspective. Apologies for the pea soup. You know, sometimes you try for the alliteration and sometimes it just happens. So there we have it. We start with pain. If you were pained by what you saw this past week, if it caused you deep soul anguish, that's not evidence of a lack of faith. On the contrary, that's evidence of the Spirit in your life. Have a look at Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Verse 22. Keep Romans open. Keep Romans 8 open. We're going to uh, be exploring it in some detail. And, and there's also verses that we didn't read this morning. But we start with Romans 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly. The Spirit of God in your life means that you will be more vulnerable to feelings of the wrongs of this world, to feeling that things are not as they ought to be, to feeling the fallenness of this world and your part in that. You will be more vulnerable to those feelings, not less vulnerable, more vulnerable. And that's because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of righteousness and He grieves at the sight of injustice and hatred and wrongdoing. This popular idea of Christian victory as positive thinking, as bouncing around with a silly smile on your face all the time, come what may, because nothing can get you down, 
And if it does, well, you just need more faith. That's a lie. It's a nonsense. It's got nothing to do with the Scriptures. If you have the Spirit in your life, you will groan inwardly. Lament in the depths of your soul. You will feel the pain of living in this broken world more, not less. We have to be careful here because not all of our feelings are spirit-inspired. Some of our pain and our fear is born of nothing more than pure self-interest. The reason we are so scared and outraged is because this unrest, this civil disobedience, threatens our happy middle-class existence. It threatens our coziness, our comfortable lives. That's not a holy groan. That is an unholy grumble. I think one marker of a holy groan will be empathy and solidarity. We will feel sad for the loss that others are incurring. Others. We'll feel sad for the sin that others are perpetrating. And our sadness will be one of solidarity. We will look at the looters and we will know in our heart of hearts, there but for the grace of God go I. If it was not for God's gracious restraining hand, that would be me. We won't think in terms of us and them. Far far too many Christians thinking and speaking in terms of us and them. Them. We will only think in terms of us. And that will cause us great pain. We will identify with the perpetrators. Not with their acts of violence or their theft. But with their image-bearing humanity. With the universal human condition called sin. If that's the nature of your pain, God knows. God sees. God hears your groan. You are in step with the Spirit. Secondly, presence. As I've just said, to feel this way is a sure sign of the presence of the Spirit in your life. If the Spirit were not in your life, you would either be indifferent or you would just be concerned with the impact of this unrest on your lifestyle. But, verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. To feel the pain I've just described means that the Spirit is present and active in your life. So much of Romans 8 is about the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit unites you to Christ. Every blessing that comes to you in Christ comes in and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, His ministry. Being made right with God, the forgiveness of your sins, adoption into the family, fellowship with Christians, growing in holiness, all of it comes to you through the Spirit. He is your counselor. He is your comforter. He is your sure and certain guide in life. When Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, says to us, surely I will be with you to the very end of the age, that promise is fulfilled by the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son are with you always in and through the Holy Spirit. 
The point is this. As we've experienced this past week, fear can make us feel so isolated, so alone. But you are never alone. Never. The Spirit of the Father and the Son is with you, loving you, serving you, leading you, comforting you. He's even praying for you. Three, prayer. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Sometimes we pray ourselves dry. We just don't know what to pray anymore. Perhaps that was your experience this past week. Know this. The Spirit Himself prays for you. And His prayers are powerful and effective because He always prays according to the Father's will. And the extraordinary thing, He's not the only one. Look at verse 34. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. Sometimes we desperately ask people to pray for us. We get it onto the prayer chain. We might even ask one of the ministers because we've read James 5.16, the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. We do whatever it takes to get people to pray for us. Know this, the righteous one himself is praying for you. I don't mean to be irreverent when I say this, but it's as if the Spirit of God and the Son of God are in a 24-7, 365 prayer vigil and the only item on the agenda is us. They're people. And every prayer they pray is powerful and effective because every prayer they pray is the perfect will of the Father. They don't need to ask, but they do. It's an expression of love. It's an expression of love for the Father. It's an expression of love for us. My friends, we do need to ask. It's no less an expression of love for the Father when we do. The only difference is we need it. We've had to relearn this lesson the hard way this past week, haven't we? We are utterly dependent. We are not in control. So why wouldn't we ask? I used to share a house with some friends at uh, university. Now we're all on the same WhatsApp group, and um, some of them live in KZN. So you can imagine uh, the action on that WhatsApp group this past week, the the, the kinds of videos and um, anecdotes and stories that have been shared. And a lot of the people in the group were expressing shock and horror. I said we should pray. Not everybody on that group is a Christian, so you can imagine how that went down. Let me quote one of my friends. She uh, responded, I'm afraid we are going to need more than prayers for this one. We've all heard dismissive responses like that, uh, haven't we? I mean, and we totally understand where they're coming from. What's the answer? What's the answer to that objection? 
I'm afraid we are going to need more than prayers for this one. The answer is, there is nothing more. There is nothing better or higher or more effective. I don't mean that in the sense of take no action. I mean that in the sense of taking the right action with the greatest chance of success. Prayer is not an excuse for inaction. Prayer is the basis for right action, for successful action. Let me use an illustration that the Bible often uses. Imagine you want to build a house. Now, there's nothing more practical, right? You're going to have to, it's not a theoretical exercise. It's not a hypothetical exercise. You're going to have to get your hands dirty. You're going to have to work hard to build a house. Here's the difference. The man who prays builds that house on a rock. The man who doesn't pray builds his house on the sand. He labors in vain. His work is futile. It has structural flaws. And at some point, it will collapse. We pray because we can. Remember what prayer is. It is access to the highest, most loving power in existence. Think about this. The unrest in our country that we've seen this past week was initially triggered Now, I'm not talking about causes. I'm just talking about the trigger. It was initially triggered by a power struggle between a president and a former president. Both men of great power. We can't even access them. If we we had something to say to them, we can't even access them. But here's the extraordinary thing. In prayer, we can go over their heads. In prayer, we can go to the source of their power. We can go to one who is no respecter of persons. He doesn't care what office you hold. We can go to the only one who truly governs without fear or favor. We can go to him. And not as citizens. As his beloved children. And so we pray. We pray our hearts out, and I hope you have been this past week. We pray our hearts out, and our prayers will have power. They will be effective as long as they are in accordance with his will. When we remember who it is we're actually praying to, prayer itself aligns us with his will. It's one of the means he uses to align us with his will. I was in a a prayer group on Monday night. Many of you were in the same prayer group. And uh, one of the ladies in our breakaway room, she was praying. And she actually prayed for the hearts of the looters. And it was so refreshing. You know, the rest of us have been praying for peace and, and for wisdom for our leaders and for security and for safety. She prayed for the hearts of the looters. She prayed that they would soften. She prayed that they would turn away from their acts of violence and they w- that they would turn to God. There was no us and them. She prayed. One sinner for another. That's the kind of prayer that is powerful and effective because it aligns with God's character and with his will. We have access to the God of all power and all comfort. Why would we not pray? Four, peace. Romans 8 verse 6. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. When the spirit lives in us, we have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we can now have peace with our fellow man. How did the spirit of peace come to us? Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God is the great peacemaker. The price of peace was the blood of his son. The price of peace was the prince of peace. And it is the prince of peace who says to us, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. One sign that you truly are a child of God is that you will be an ambassador for peace. And this is the peace that the Messiah ushers in. This is cosmic shalom. It is so much more than boots on the ground so that we can have quiet in the streets. It is a flourishing, harmonious society of loving, mutual care out of love for God. And we can be agents and instruments of that peace. And that can start now, in the midst of this crisis. Every video you decide not to send because it is divisive fear-mongering is an act of peace. Every calm word you speak to someone who is angry or fearful is an act of peace. Every kind word you speak to someone who insults you is an act of peace. Every small act of love that places human dignity above political allegiance is an act of peace. All of it is a witness to the great peacemaker and his act of peace. And you can start the moment we finish this sermon Look for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. We can make a start now in the midst of the crisis. But we also need to take a longer view. We need to be who we are. We are sons and daughters of the great peacemaker. We need to be about his business, witnessing to his great act of peacemaking. If this past week has taught us anything, it has taught us how much peace there is to make. There is no end to the opportunities for peacemaking in our land. The chaos we've seen in the streets is playing out in our families, 
So let's give everything we have to the crisis and care center. So much of shalom depends on the start you get in life. So let's throw ourselves at the Love Trust and their tireless work to give the most vulnerable children in our community the best start in life they can get. We spoke about Letuktula this morning. Letuktula is all about peace, both in name and in purpose. So let's get behind black and let's make it happen. Those are formal and informal avenues through the church, through the gathered community, the gathered family of God's people. But there are also opportunities as we scatter as God's people. In your everyday life, in every single thought, word, or deed, you are either building up our society for shalom or you are breaking it down. It's one or the other. There's no neutral ground. We need to acknowledge that. And we need to insist in the Lord that we are those who build up our society for shalom in every thought, word, and deed. Let's not be those Christians who are only against things. You know, you know the type I'm thinking of. Sometimes we are them. Let's not be them. A long list of things and people we're against. Not so clear on what we're for. No, we are children of the peacemaker. Let's be for peace. Let's get out there and make peace happen. Five, providence. Christians facing trial and tribulation and turmoil across the ages have found enormous comfort from these words. You will know them well. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's providence. We call it providence. just means that God has a plan. It is a plan for our good. What is our good? To be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And that means, in the current crisis, our property could be destroyed or stolen. We ourselves or our loved ones could be hurt in the violence. God forbid, but it could happen. Our deepest fears could come to pass. They could. If they do, none of it will be empty pain. None of it will be meaningless suffering. God will use it for our supreme good to make us like Jesus. Even death. That's our deepest fear, isn't it? Even death. God will use for our good. If you are in Christ, nothing will make you like Christ faster than death because you will be with him and to be with him is to be like him. That's the promise of the scriptures. The question for all of us is, do we actually believe that being like Jesus and being with Jesus is our supreme good? 
Do we trust in that promise, in that conviction? If you doubt it, and let's be honest, we all go through seasons of doubting this particular promise. If you doubt it, think about him. Meditate on him. Cast your mind on him. No one was calmer or kinder or more courageous, more compassionate. No one was more attractive as a human being. No one lived a more joyful, loving, generous life. Above all else, no one is closer to the Father. I'd say we want to be more like him. I'd say we want to be with him. I'd say it's worth anything. It's worth sacrificing anything. There is no higher blessing. And the great news is that if God has begun this work in you, he will bring it to completion. He will bring it to an end. And it ends in glory. Whatever happens along the way, whatever happens along the way, serves that purpose. God bringing you to glory in Christ Jesus. Even the chaos we see now, all around us, serves that purpose. That's providence. It sounds wonderful, but is it true? Is it true? What's the evidence? Six, passion. What evidence do we have that God can turn anything to our good? What evidence do we have that he can turn the random chaos of violence and looting into something good? Something that's for us. I mean, it seems a push. That's, that's a heck of a claim to make. If you're going to make such, a, such an audacious claim, you better have evidence to back it up. What's the evidence? The cross. The passion of the Christ. We crucified God. That's as low as humanity can go. That's as evil and as chaotic as it gets. And yet, God turned that cross, that hour of our greatest darkness, God turned that into the hour of humanity's greatest good. The cross was pure evil, and yet it is the cross that saves us and sets us free. Now, if God can do that with the cross, do you think he's going to struggle with some civil unrest? Do you think it's beyond him? I don't know how he will turn the events of the past week to good, but if you doubt that he can, look to the cross. We see mob violence on our streets. Humanly speaking, Jesus was the victim of mob violence. He was tried by a kangaroo court. He died because the crowd turned against him. They were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Mob justice, mob justice meant that he would die and a murderer would go free. Mob justice. But he rose. He lives. The mob threw everything at him and the mob lost. 
Jesus won. And by his spirit, we share in that victory. Seven, perspective. Everything we've heard from Romans 8 demands that we look at the world and we look at this crisis with new eyes, with different eyes, that we run off a different operating system. This is how Paul says it in Romans 8 verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Are you going to respond to this crisis according to your sinful nature? Which simply means according to the rules of self-interest. That would mean indifference. I really don't care as long as it doesn't come to my house. Or at the other end of the spectrum, it would mean being absolutely paralyzed by fear. That's the mind of the sinful nature. You can respond like that, or you can respond according to the Spirit. What would it look like to respond according to the Spirit? Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided, here's the proviso, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, having a Spirit-filled perspective, means that you live as someone who is going to inherit the universe. Now, how would we live if we were going to inherit the universe? Because that's who you are. You are going to inherit the universe because your brother Jesus is going to inherit the universe and he likes to share But before any of that happens, there will be suffering. There will be suffering. What effect is that suffering going to have on you? Some. It's going to have some effect. It's suffering after all. It will be painful. But you are going to inherit the universe. Doesn't that give you a fresh perspective on your suffering? Doesn't that give you new eyes with which to view your suffering? Peter says it like this. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Paul says the same thing in different words. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Compared to eternity, Paul is saying our troubles are easy to bear. And they're over in the blink of an eye. In fact, they're not even worth comparing with eternity. But you only see that. And you only get the freedom that comes with that perspective when you set your mind on eternity. When you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Verse 24. Romans chapter 8 verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We have this hope, this sure and certain hope. Remember, biblical hope is, is certain, it is sure. It is the sure expectation of a future reality. It is not wishy-washy. 
It's sure and it's certain. It's simply a future reality. We have this hope for eternity. And when we have it, we like the rest of creation, which waits with eager longing. That's what Romans 8 says. All of creation is waiting with eager longing. The idea is standing on your toes and craning your neck and straining your eyes at the horizon. Waiting, watching, expecting someone to come over that horizon. And that's us. The Lord Jesus is coming. We wait for him with great expectation, eager expectation. And because we are so certain of eternity, we can wait with patience. That word has connotations of bearing up under suffering. It's long-suffering. It's not just hanging around. It's bearing up under suffering. It means that while we wait for the glory of eternity that will soon be on us, we can suffer. We can bear it. We know that it will be over soon, and on the other side, there will be nothing but pure bliss. How do we respond to this crisis as disciples of Jesus? What truths should guide us? These seven things at least. Pain. It is natural for you to lament this broken world as a believer. It is good and right. Presence. God is with us. In this, walking with us, shoulder to shoulder. He will not forsake us. He will not leave us. He is with us by his Spirit. Prayer. The Spirit and the Son are praying. Let's join them. Peace. Our God is a peacemaker. Blessed are his children who make peace with him. Providence. God will turn even this, even this God will turn to our good. It will not be meaningless. It will not be empty, vain, futile suffering. Even this he will turn to our good. Passion. The cross of Christ guarantees that he will turn even this to our good. Perspective. The mind of the Spirit helps us to look at this crisis with different eyes. To set our minds on eternity. To set our hearts on glory. Let me close with these words, which are some of my favorite words in the Bible. I'm sure I share that with with many of you. Uh, These words had a big part in me becoming a disciple of Jesus. Let me read them for you. Romans 8 and reading from verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? that's our question this morning, isn't it? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus The one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or civil unrest or looting or violence? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing 
Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Not even your death. And so we can say with pure conviction, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. If you forget everything else I've said this morning, if you can't remember a single one of those seven Ps, just remember this. You are safe in the love of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate demonstration of your love. He is your love in flesh and blood. Thank you that you love us the way you do. We pray for our beloved country. We long to be better, a more loving society. We long to be at peace with each other. Pour out your spirit on this land. Give us your peace. Make us your church agents of that peace. In everything we do, help us to build and extend the shalom that our Lord Jesus has won for us at such a great price. Finally, Father, I pray for anyone who is watching this and who is deeply afraid. Please reassure them. Give them a real sense of the peace that surpasses understanding. Guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. Help them to lift their eyes and see eternity. Show them the hope they have in Christ, the sure and certain hope they have in Christ. Grant them the comfort that only you can give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, everybody. God willing, we'll be back together next, next week.